Today's reading comes from Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Carrie. Morning, Redemption. I am uh, way past the age of ever hoping to have good hair days again, so that's, that, was, that was fun to reminisce with Caleb on that. Um, wanted to mention, uh, because I, we end up uh, getting a lot of uh, emails and questions about this every year at, at the end of the year, and so I'll just mention it. Um, the year-end giving, if you're giving online and you do it before uh, the first of the year, and if, in other words, if you give online by the 31st, you're going to get all the tax credits. Um, we have to have checks here on the property if you're doing it via checks. So we have to have them here on the property by the 31st um, uh, or postmarked by the 31st. We can uh, receive them after as long as we have a postmark that shows the 31st. And if you're doing something through your broker, a securities or whatever, uh, the best way to do that would be to contact Neil Pitchell, our executive uh, pastor at, at Redemption Central. And if you need information on how to be able to contact him, you can just uh, email me and I will get that to you uh, right away just to help you um, for your year-end planning. Uh, let me pray and we're going to get into really the second uh, of the last um, of these messages uh, on our Advent series. Uh, Christmas Eve is always considered also an Advent message as well. So let me pray and we'll get into it for today. Uh, Lord God, we are grateful for who you are. Uh, we're thankful for your word and its truth. We're thankful for uh, your Holy Spirit. We welcome your Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit's already here. It's up to us to welcome uh, you in that regard. And we're thankful for your Son, uh, we celebrate the birth of your son during this season, and we are reminded that uh, not only did he go to the cross for us, that he was raised from the dead, but also he's coming again. That's what this season is all about, the totality of it. So help us to understand that. Uh, help us to live with uh, courage, with faith, and with hope, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through uh, Isaiah 52 and 53. These are what you might call highly messianic parts of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. He is looking forward to the suffering servant um, and, and talking about Jesus who will be born some 600 years uh, later. Uh, what we've looked at in these two chapters, first of all, is God saying, don't worry, I have a plan. That was the first message. You, you don't need to worry about it. Uh, I know that the, the, the world is messed up. And there are issues, uh, disruption, disorientation, sin, corruption. I have a plan for that, and I've always had a plan. Uh, the second week, we talked about how you're not going to believe who this plan is going to be executed through. That's going to be my suffering servant, Jesus. Uh, and, then, and then last week, Tyler talked about you're, you're also not going to believe how this is going to happen. So uh, take the, the least likely scenario that you could have for saving people 
uh, from their sin for, for restoring the world to its original creation, and God has that plan. And then this week, what we're looking at is the fact that God says, and this is all my will. This is all my will. And so we're going to talk today about uh, the will of God. And this is going to be challenging for some people. I just want to let you know. Uh, and, and, and so be praying and, 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 and listen and see if we can't help discern how we can better understand the will of God because the will of God is an important issue in the Bible. Uh, let me start by reading what Paul writes in Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. So Paul has laid out the gospel in the book of Ephesians. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel. Okay? So now it's all application. So this gospel that I've laid out for three chapters is true. All this doctrine, all this teaching, all this theology is true. And now you need to live in light of that. You need to apply this to your life. And in chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, Look carefully then how you walk. So this phrase, how you walk, is an ancient Greek colloquialism that literally means how you live your life, how you're going to walk out and apply uh, principles to your life. So look carefully how you're going to walk out your life. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now just stop and think, what would be a synonym for the word unwise? Foolish. Be the word foolish. Um, this is Paul sort of mimicking the book of Proverbs actually right here. The book of Proverbs uh, is set up primarily so that we can see what the wise person does and what the foolish person does. And if you're on the fence trying to decide whether you're going to be wise or foolish, you can find out how to be the wise person, but you can also find out how to be the foolish person in the book of Proverbs. So this is Paul saying, look, don't walk, don't live your life as a foolish person, but live your life as a wise person. So it's very similar to the book of Proverbs. And he says, as a wise person, you should make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Here's what he's saying there. He's saying, listen, it's hard to live in this world. Right? Yes. Thank, yes. Exactly. It's hard to live in this world. You need wisdom, godly wisdom, in order to be able to navigate this world properly. And even at that, it's going to be a challenge. Even at that, it's going to be hard. Jesus even says in, in John chapter 16, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. So he's saying, listen, you need to be really careful how you walk in this world. You need the navigation of God's wisdom. You need the navigation of God's will in your life. Therefore, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what wisdom is, is understanding what the will of the Lord is. He finally says it. He uses the word foolish. He says, do not be foolish. Well, how do I not be foolish? He says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, some of you right now are going, yes, I want to know exactly what the will of the Lord is for my life. Some of you are like, I suspect there's going to be a curveball thrown here, and there might be, okay? <laughs> Understanding what the will of the Lord is, is how you can live in wisdom. I would say it's amazing how little we truly pursue what God's will is. 
we pursue what we think God's will might be. But truly pursuing it is something that's a little bit more challenging. And yet God's word throughout tells us all the time what his will is and that we should pursue it and submit to it in order to live in true wisdom. And what we find today is that it was God's will that he would sacrifice his son so that anyone who would believe in his son, Jesus, would have eternal life. That's God's will. That his son would be sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sin and for the restoration and redemption of creation. That's God's will. It says so right here in Isaiah 53.10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush Jesus. It was God's will to crush Jesus. That's an amazing statement. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, whose guilt? Our guilt. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. There it is again. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It was his will to crush him so that his will would prosper in the Savior's hands. This is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, I think. This is outlining for us what God's will is. So what about his offspring? So by going to the cross and then being resurrected from the grave, subsequently he's going to have offspring. The Savior, Jesus, is going to have offspring. That's anybody who's been born again. That's anybody who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's somebody who claims Christ as their Savior. There's a little story in the Gospel of John about this. Here's what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, uh, this story always prompted Tom Schrader to say, this is where we get the phrase Nick at night. Because Nicodemus came at... Okay, anyway. Just my weekly monument to Tom, okay? So... This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here comes Nicodemus at night, because he didn't want anybody else to know. He's one of the religious professionals. He didn't want anybody to know that he's going to Jesus, because Jesus is, is already causing trouble. So Nicodemus didn't really want to be seen with Jesus. So he goes at nights goes at night, and, and, and he just tries to flatter him, and Jesus is just cutting through all the smog of the flatter, and he, and he answers the question that Nicodemus would really like to know, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if somebody just walked up to you and said that, and you didn't know anything, you might respond exactly the way Nicodemus does. Look at what Nicodemus does. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a legitimate question. It's kind of silly, but it's a legitimate question, okay? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, actually physically born, okay, and of the Spirit, born again by the Spirit of God, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Just being born into this world isn't enough. You also have to then be born by the Spirit. The Spirit has to convert your heart. You have to come in repentance and faith to Jesus. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is God's will for your life, to be born again. That's God's will, that you would know him, that you would submit to him, that you would pursue his wisdom, that you would know Jesus. That's God's will for your life. goes on later on in that chapter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. This is God's will. This is God's will. What's God's will for my life? To know Jesus. Okay? And then it says there's this guilt offering. Jesus was offered as a guilt offering for our sin. Do you ever feel guilty? You don't have to answer that. My assumption is that you do, especially in traffic. Here you go. You know why we feel guilty? Because we are. Okay? Now, I understand some of you immediately want to push back because, because guilt has gotten a very, very bad rap in our culture. And I understand that because some guilt is a problem. But not all guilt is bad, especially if, as Tyler taught us last week, if our guilt is going to move us toward repentance and righteousness, that is a tool that's being used by God to open our eyes to the reality of who Jesus is. That's good. That's good. We needed a guilt offering by God because we are guilty of sin. We needed that. And Jesus' sacrifice removes all of our guilt. That's pretty amazing. Now, the hard thing, and I will tell you, I struggle with this. I can't even tell you how much I struggle with this. After coming to Christ, I shouldn't feel guilty anymore, and yet I still struggle with it. Because the weight of sin is just tremendous, and we're still living in this world. Even though I know I'm redeemed, I know that standing before God I'm righteous, I'm still in the flesh and I'm still sinning. That's a struggle. I have to remind myself every single day of the gospel that Christ died for me. And God did all of this with, by, and through Jesus. When Shelby was born, she's our firstborn. We have two daughters. When Shelby was born, I'd been a Christian for about four years, sort of a brand new Christian. One thing I distinctly remember, I mean, right in that moment, it was amazing how, th- how many of you are parents and you, you felt like your life changed radically at that moment, okay? I, I had that experience. It was, it's still just firmly embedded in my mind. Um, one thing I distinctly remember is how my understanding of the gospel grew radically by having my own child, and it grew radically in two ways, because I never really fully understood this until I had my own child. Okay? Number one, I will tell you that I would rather die than Shelby or Darby die. I would rather die than Shelby or Darby. In fact, Jackie and I actually have a pact, and I know this is going to sound a little bit morbid to some of you, but we have a pact. We have actually discussed this. We believe in planning and preparation, 
if Jackie and I are ever in a situation where we have to choose between either us living or our children living, we're going to choose our children every single time. It's not even, it's not even close, but we, we've agreed to that. We've actually had that conversation. You understand that God didn't do that with Jesus. He sacrificed his son so that I could live. Me, a sinner, a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. That's how the Bible describes us prior to coming to know Jesus. A child of wrath and a son of disobedience. And God chose for me to live by having his son die. That's just stunning to me as a parent. Didn't quite get it before I became a parent. Here's the second thing. I would, I'm just telling you, I love you all very much, but I would never sacrifice either of my children or my son-in-law, Joey, for that matter, so that someone else could be saved and redeemed. Never would I do that. I just wouldn't. I would look you in the eye and say, I love you, but tough darts. It ain't going to happen. But again, that's exactly what God did with his son, Jesus. That's the true, actual Christmas story. That's God's will. Now, a little bit of a diversion. Here's the diversion part. I I think we need to talk about this because uh, just doing this for so many years, I know that this is a question that many people have when the subject of God's will comes up. And obviously, we're talking about God's will. So here's the question that a lot of people have. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. But how do I know God's will for what? My life. For me. What is God's specific will for me? Believe it or not, this question is not that hard to answer. Because, but because we have the wrong assumptions about God's will and the wrong expectations for God's will, we often get this question wrong, the answer to this question wrong. Uh, Many Christians believe that the most important will that God has is his specific personal will for my life. And that's just not true. It's not accurate. So we spend all of our time pursuing that personal specific will for my life at the expense of what God's more important will is. There are actually two wills of God that we find in the Bible, two of them. His sovereign will and his moral will. And the Bible makes a distinction between the two this way. God's sovereign will is understood as his purpose that cannot and will not ever be frustrated or thwarted. His purpose that cannot and will not ever be frustrated or thwarted. So Ephesians 11, uh, 1.11 is, is a verse that, that comes to mind. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's His sovereign will. And His moral will is known by His moral and wise commands for us for how we are to live our life, which you and I may or may not do, by the way. We can thwart his moral will because we have agency to do that. 
So his moral will, for instance, here you go. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not gossip and create factions. Honor the Sabbath. So do you see the difference there? And no, there's really not this third, what about me, will. I'll explain a little bit more. Hang in there. So let's talk a little bit more about God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is his will to purpose and do whatever he pleases and nothing can stop him. There are so many verses. Here are two. Daniel 4.35. God does according to his will among the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 115.3 says it this way. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. If you're looking for another another verse about his sovereign will, look at Isaiah 53.10. We just read it. That's his will. Secondly, God's moral will. God's moral will is his commands and his wisdom that he calls us to obey, follow, and embrace. And there's many verses, but here's one verse and then one passage. So uh, 1 John 2, verse 17. The world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then here's another one. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Paul writes this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not... Grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, God's moral will. We're called to these things, Paul says, but do we do them? Not always. Sometimes, not even part of the time. Uh, one author says it this way. Think about it this way. God's moral will forbids murder, yet his sovereign will called for the murder of his son so that we could be saved and redeemed. Wow. That's kind of mind-blowing, if you think about it. Now, what the vast majority of us want and think of whenever we say God's will uh, is something known as God's individual specific will for all of my life. Um, in, Gary's, in Gary Friesen's book, The Decision-Making in the Will of God, he calls this the ever-elusive dot that God dangles in front of us and that we're supposed to hunt down and find. This little dot. Okay. In other words, there is a person, one person, a specific person, that God, in His infinite wisdom, has for me to marry. Let me say, that's not necessarily true before you get married, but once you are married, then it is true. (laughs) There is one school, a specific school that God has in His infinite wisdom and His infinite will for me to attend. There is, there is a career or a job, a specific job that God, in His infinite and specifically appointed will and wisdom, has for me to take. 
There is a place, a specific place, where God in His infinite and lovingly directed toward me, will and wisdom has for me to live. Well, I've always wanted to know the answer to this question. If that's true, how far does it go? Do you ever, ever thought, think about that? How far does that go? Okay. Um, I know this will sound flip, but I've got to ask the question, how far does it go? Do, do you pray about the toothpaste that God's will has for you to buy? Do you stand in CVS going, um, Sensodyne or Pro-Enamel, which one will it be this month? Okay. Is there a God's will car for you to drive? Some of you are like, yes, there is, and I'm not driving it right now. <laughs> um, was it God's will for you to wear pants or shorts this morning? Well, it was chilly, so it was pants. Okay, see how easily we can manipulate this? Okay. Yeah. Now, here you go. You need to understand, it is true that in God's sovereign will, He might, might, might arrange something specific for us. He might. He might do that. But it's not his standard operating procedure, and there is hardly anything in Scripture that backs that up. It's mostly about his sovereign and his moral will. Yet the one that we focus on is this individual will for our lives. And understand that when he does do it for you, specifically, when he does do something specifically for you, here's the problem. He's doing it for his glory and not yours. He's doing it for his glory and not yours. So this whole specific individual for me, God's will, I found is really nothing but an American a construct by American consumeristic Christians. I'm telling you, in, in the 15th century, people weren't running around asking this question. This has become extant only uh, recently by American consumeristic Christians. Now, again, let me stop there and hit you with something that's going to be uncomfortable. But if you're a consumer first and a Christian second, you got a problem. But that's what we have in a lot of churches in America today. Okay? We, we, we need to get our priorities straight with this. Okay? And, and the saddest part is that we will press into this will, which really isn't supported that much in the Bible, and at the same time, we'll, we'll um, live with apathy toward his sovereign and moral will, which is in the Bible, which is actually the subject of today's message. That's why this is challenging today. So, who should I marry? Well, by marrying, have you obliged God's moral will? If you can answer that question, yes, then marry whoever you want. See how that works? See, I married Jackie more than 32 years ago. I don't believe it was God's specific will for my life that I marry specifically Jackie. But it was his moral will, his sovereign will, that I would marry somebody who loved Jesus and is a woman of God. And I know that it might be hard to believe, but there are other women out there who love Jesus and are women of God. Do you see how that works? Okay. Where should I go to school? Well, my comments here are timely. Did you cheat or pay someone off to get into your school? <laughs> and if the... Sorry. <laughs> no, Carrie didn't pay anybody off, but she was at school with some who did, okay? Um, if the answer to that question is no, then go to whatever school you want that will accept you. 
By the way, there's other questions you would ask. You get the idea. I'm just using examples. What job should I take? Well, did you lie on your resume? Here you go. Here's something fabulous to consider. If, no, I didn't lie on my resume. Okay, then take the job that pays the best and works you the fewest hours. Here, here's, again, here's what Friesen writes about all this. Listen to this. Within God's moral will, we are given the freedom. The freedom. This should be freeing to us. We're given the freedom, responsibility, and wisdom to make God-honoring decisions. Do you follow this? When I really began to wrestle with this, I'm telling you, I felt freedom in the midst of this. By the way, here's one of the biggest problems with this idea of God's specific individual will for my life view. And I have heard this too many times to count, just so much. Here you go. Um, I clearly missed God's will on that because that job was really hard. Okay, so if a job is hard and challenging, it must not be God's will. That sounds like a consumeristic Christian to me. Okay? Or here you go, man, I must, not have been, uh, I must not have been in God's will on that because the curriculum at that school was really difficult. Obviously, you're talking about ASU, okay? Or GCU, sorry, okay. H here you go. I hear this one quite a bit. God's will must be that I get divorced because I misread his will when I married this person because this marriage has been really challenging. You see how we flip this stuff around? This is another reason that we know that God's individual will for my life is really more of an American construct because as American Christians, most of us, listen now, most of us find it distasteful that God would actually exercise his will by having it work in us through challenge, adversity, and suffering. Yet he exercised his will through the crucifixion of Christ. Life truth number six. God is not hiding his will from your, uh, for your life and my life. The problem is, is that we just don't want to follow it. It is God's sovereign will that our sin be paid for by Christ on the cross, his son. And it is sovereign, his sovereign will that Jesus be raised from the dead and give us eternal life. That's his sovereign will. That's good news. And because of that, he now has the right to present to us his moral will for us to follow. And that's what he's done. God's will is that we come to him, submit to him, obey, praise, serve, love, and worship him, and then love and serve others. That's God's will for our life. And that would be Christmas. A couple of really helpful books if you're interested in pursuing this further. One of them is Gary Friesen's book. It's an older book, but it's, it's considered a classic. Uh, Decision-Making in the Will of God. And then Jerry Sitzer, uh, probably my favorite Christian author, written several books, including A Grace Disguise, which I know many of you have read. Uh, he wrote a book called The Will of God as a Way of Life. Very, very helpful if you're interested in that. So back to Isaiah now, 5311, further uh, listening to what his will was for his suffering service servants and therefore for us as well. Out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, 
He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So here's life truth number nine. Anguish almost always comes before satisfaction. Broccoli always comes before cheesecake. Amen? Anguish always comes before satisfaction. Now, humans have been trying for millennia to figure out how to have satisfaction without anguish. Have you noticed that? But unless you're a trust baby, it just doesn't work that way. And if you are a trust baby, the anguish comes after the satisfaction, I found. (laughs) Which is even worse, by the way. You know I love movies. There's an 1985 movie called Wall Street. Anybody see it? There's a classic line when Daryl Hannah, her character, looks at Bud Fox, the main character in that movie. And she says, you know, Bud, you're going to find that having money and losing it is way worse than never having money in the first place at all. Some of you remember that line. That's the idea of anguish coming after satisfaction. Okay? The anguish that he's talking about, that God is talking about for his son, is this idea of the agony of, of the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he becomes sin. That's the agony of the cross. It's not the physical pain, which, by the way, was excruciating, which is where we get the word excruciate from. It's from the Latin word crux, which means cross. The pain was excruciating, but his agony came from being made sin and God, his father, rejecting him. And, by the way, the pain of his own people rejecting him too, standing there mocking him while he's on the cross. Could you imagine being executed for something you didn't do and the people mocking you in the process? That would just be horrible. And yet, out of the death of one, many are made righteous. Again, that's just incredible to me. Just incredible. And then 53.12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So not only did he go, and die, go to the cross and die for our sins and was raised from the dead, not only did he do that, but he, now he intercedes on our behalf. He stands up for us. He's our advocate. Even when we don't realize it, he's there standing in the gap between us and God, pleading our case for us, which we don't even have a case, yet he's pleading, it's because they're with me. He's pleading our case with God. That's his intercession. And it says that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, but he bore the sin of many. Again, the irony in this verse, one of the most ironic verses in the Bible. Jesus was perceived by his contemporaries to be a sinner because he hung out with sinners. Yet he had no sin. He's not like us. Okay, I hang out with somebody who's sinning. I tend to get sucked more into their life than they get sucked into my life as a pastor. I would just tell you, that's just the way it is. Paul says it. Bad, bad company corrupts good morals. Paul says that in his letters to the Corinthians. Okay? Jesus was sinless. He hung out with sinners. That made him a sinner in the eyes of others. And yet he had no sin. And that's why he's the perfect sacrifice for us. That's why he had to be born of the Spirit as well. And not of man. 
And yet, even though he was not a sinner, he bore the transgressions of those that he saved. He paid our debt. Paid your debt. Paid my debt. And he did it simply out of grace. Definition of grace, unmerited favor. Again, I ask the question, what can we do to merit unmerited favor? Not a thing. Not a thing. And that's Christmas. Christmas is unmerited favor. That Jesus would be born to live that perfect life and then go as the spotless sacrificial lamb so that we could have life. That's amazing. So this is God's will. It's God's will that his son take our place, the sinner's place, and that we, the sinners, get Jesus' righteous and holy standing before God. That's God's will. And that's the whole reason Jesus was born in the first place. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because through that birth, this entire process of our salvation is enacted. God's plan and his promise becomes real. And he's coming again. And that's where our hope lies. So Merry Christmas, and we will see you in two days at 3.30 and or 5 o'clock for Christmas Eve, okay? Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you do have a perfect and holy will for our lives. And it's really hard to submit to that. And that's why you constantly call us to your wisdom. So help us to embrace that wisdom. Help us to see that wisdom. Help us to desire that wisdom. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and direct us towards that wisdom. Please, God. Uh, God, we know our faults. We know our shortcomings. We know that we struggle. And that's why we should turn to you and that's why we need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves every single day. Help us to do that. Remind us of the hope that we have in you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.